Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to 1 John 4. So today is my seventh message on the topic of love. You know what? The love of God, it's phenomenal. It's stupendous. It's magnificent. The love of God is absolutely amazing. It's lavish. And his love is extravagant. And sadly, few people know just how madly and passionately God loves us. No one's love tank is full. No one. Not one person. I mean, sometimes life happens and, you know, we take torpedoes to our hole or, you know, our love tank gets, you know, shot full of bullet holes. And I don't know about you, but it feels like I leak sometimes. And I need, I need more. I need something else. I need something put in. Everyone I know, every single person I know, believer or non-believer, needs a better understanding and experience of God's love for them. And that's in large part the reason why I've taken this time over these past weeks to teach on this topic. I don't think we're done yet. There's more to it. So to that end, we've looked at some amazing verses. We've looked at two by Jesus and, and four by the Apostle Paul. We looked at Mark 12, where it says, the, uh, where Jesus tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. You know what? All means all. Have you ever loved someone with all? Have you ever loved in, another, in such a way that you're wrung out? You've got nothing left. That's loving with all. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus used profound terminology when he says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. And then, then we looked at some verses from Paul's writing in Ephesians 3 where he tells us, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in what? In love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Powerful words. We looked at his letter to Romans in uh, chapter 8, verse 38. He says, And I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Could he qualify that statement any more completely about just how inseparable we are from his love, just how inseparable his love from us? I don't care how crummy you feel today. You might be sitting in this church this morning and feel like 10 pounds of sin in a 5-pound bag. You're still inseparable from his love. Nothing will be able to separate you from his love. That's how good, that's how lavish, that's how extravagant God's love is. Then we looked at some powerful verses from 1 Corinthians 13. And, you know, the, the, the first week we looked at that, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 13 resonates in my heart because I'm a person who has prophetic <laughs> gifts. It says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Whew. Boy. It just resonates to my core. And then we, the week after that, we looked at Paul's you know, amazing definition, his description of love from verses 4 to 8. He tells us that love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. 
and keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And this is the good news I told you. That's not, that's not the measure or standard that we have to work hard to, to somehow attain to. We can't do that. We absolutely are incapable of doing what it says to do in those four verses. Because on my best of my best days, I don't always protect, always trust, always hope, always persevere. I don't always do those things. When I'm at my m mountaintop, when, when, I, when I'm doing my absolute best as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a Christian, I still can't do it always. Only God can fulfill the standard. You know what the good news is? That's a description of how God loves us. That's a definition of God, that God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. Oh, my God. He's not easily angered. Easily angered. He's not easily angered. Isn't that good news? That's not the God I was raised to believe in. He is not easily angered. And the next line, God keeps no record of wrongs. Are you kidding me? That's, that's astonishingly good news. If God is love, and it says love keeps no record of wrongs, God keeps no record of wrongs. There's no list somewhere he's ready to hammer me with it when I, when I appear before him. Love does not delight in evil. God rejoices in the truth. God always protects. God always trusts. God always hopes. God always perseveres. God never fails. I'm excited about the love of God. I have passion and energy for it. So today I want to continue on that theme. I want to look at 1 John 4, verses 13 to 19. So please follow along as I read. Whew. This is how we know that we live in him and he is in us. He's given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and them in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. So Lord, I thank you for your word, for the truth and the power that's in your word. Lord, would you open our eyes today, open our hearts, open our minds. Lord, pour truth into us, truth that will be liberating and set us free. Amen? So keep a finger in 1 John 4. I'm going to work my way back to it. So small things matter. I think sometimes small things can matter a whole lot. Have you ever stubbed your toe, right? You ever stubbed your little pinky toe, right? You, you stubbed that toe and your whole body is screaming that you stubbed that little toe, right? Everything stops. Nothing else is functioning. All of your attention is given to that little toe. Have you ever got a paper cut? I swear sometimes it's like handling a machete. Sometimes the... <laughs> it's like, are you kidding me? Ugh, it's so annoying. 
How about a splinter? And it gets in there so deep. You got to dig, you get dig. Little things, a toothache, right? Small part of the body. And it's, it's like stubbing your toe. It got all your attention. You could barely function. You can't sleep. You can't eat. Nothing. Small things can have a huge impact on the entire body. Now, I'm convinced... I'm absolutely convinced that much of the church has a distorted view of God the Father. And I've said this before, but it's like we see the Father as the mean one, and Jesus as the nice one, and the Holy Spirit as the weird one. <laughs> I'm concerned that most of us have an Old Covenant or an Old Testament view of God. And this has produced a church that is more attuned to law than to grace. More attuned to religion than relationship. More attuned to rules and regulation than affection. And we view faith and our understanding of Scripture through that distorted lens. Thus, Scripture is misinterpreted and misunderstood sometimes for ages. So, for example, we live under the assumption that God the Father is not loving but rather he's an angry judge who's ready to drop the hammer on us at any second. It's a distorted view of Christianity, and it, and it tends to derail our spiritual journeys. But then God opens our eyes. Some way, some, something happens, and he opens our eyes. And old verses uh, take on new meaning, and, and we do. We know the truth, and that truth brings freedom into our lives. And so from that place of freedom, we ask new questions and we, we explore deeper meanings and deeper understanding. And, and so I say all that to say this. God piqued my curiosity this week. Sometimes, as I go about my week, God will just drop a thought, a concept, an idea in my head, and it kind of it keeps poking me in the back of my brain until I go and I search it out and... and and find some new discovery. And he kind of did that to me this week. And, and he did it with this biblical phrase. And the phrase is this. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. So that's just kind of been in the back of my head. And I'm thinking, I, I have to do some study on this. And I want to share with you this morning some of the things I came up with. So we're probably all familiar with Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. You know, You've either had a bumper sticker at some point or one of the little cards or a magnet on your refrigerator, right? It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We, we've all heard that verse before, right? It's probably not new to anyone here. A common verse, a familiar verse. Now, the Hebrew word used here for fear is the word yah. It's a Hebrew noun. It's used 45 times in Scripture. And it's most frequently translated as fear. 27 of those times it's used in this context. It's used in the context of the phrase, the fear of the Lord. So the common understanding of this verse basically has been this. If someone is afraid of the Lord, then they'll begin to have wisdom. If someone is afraid of God, then that's the entry point or the starting point for wisdom in their lives. And that seems to fit well with our English understanding of the word fear, being an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous and likely to cause us pain. So from that perspective, 
from that perspective that if someone's afraid of the Lord, they'll begin to have wisdom, and that our understanding of fear is an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous and likely causes pain. From that perspective, we think that God is dangerous and likely to cause us pain. It fits into that mindset that God's the angry judge ready to drop the hammer on us, right? But how, does, how is that the beginning of wisdom? How, how, is, how is that the beginning? Something doesn't fit here for me. It feels like we're trying, to me, it feels like trying to squid a, fit a square peg into a round hole. So there's a problem. There's another problem. That understanding, to approach the verse in that way, is inconsistent with the phrase's use in the Hebrew language. It's inconsistent with the way that that phrase is commonly used in Hebrew. The Hebrew for this phrase, Yah, Yahweh, fear Lord, according to ancient Hebrew, if you like to do study, wonderful website on the original Hebrew language called ancient Hebrew, ancient-hebrew.org. I highly recommend checking it out. Wonderful website. According to ancient Hebrew, when two nouns are placed together, they're in what's commonly referred to as a construct state, simply meaning that these two words should be considered as one. And so this, let me make it simpler for you. The phraseology is used nine times in the book of Genesis. I think we have a, a slide for that. We, we're familiar with the phrase that says, the word of the Lord, Genesis 15. Or the voice of the Lord, Genesis 3. Or the face of the Lord, the name of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord, the garden of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, the way of the Lord, the mount of the Lord. Right? So that, that phraseology is commonly used in Scripture. Now hold on to that thought. I want to be back to it in a second. There's another fear of the Lord verse that concerns me, and it's from Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 3. I love these verses. They speak profoundly to me. It says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And verse 3 says, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Now this is what's commonly referred to as the seven spirits of God. And I've heard teaching on it that describes these seven as a building progression. One building upon another with the fear of the Lord being the zenith, being the highest place. And I, and I agree with that concept, that building concept. But I struggle with the understanding of the phrase, the fear of the Lord. It's this very same noun that's used in Proverbs 9.10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So how is being afraid of God the highest point? Again, it, it doesn't fit for me. It's the square peg getting squeezed into a round hole. Are you guys tracking with me so far? Okay, so if the word of the Lord appropriately interpreted means the Lord's word, and the voice of the Lord means the Lord's voice, and the face of the Lord means the Lord's face, and the name of the Lord means the Lord's name, and the eyes of the Lord means the Lord's eyes, and the garden of the Lord means the Lord's garden, 
And the angel of the Lord means the Lord's angel. And the way of the Lord means the Lord's way. And the mount of the Lord means the Lord's mountain. Then does the fear of the Lord mean the Lord's fear? Is God afraid? That God has a fear. Or that somehow God possesses a fear within himself. Good question, right? You'll notice that in every instance, the first word in the construct, word, voice, face, name, belongs, it's possessed by, it's owned by the second word in the construct, Yahweh. So the fear in the phrase, the fear of the Lord, that's not a reference to your fear and my fear. That somehow if we fear God, that's a fear we possess. That's not what the verse is saying. The fear of the Lord is not talking about a fear that we have of God. It's referring to the Lord's fear. Just like it's referring to the Lord's voice, the Lord's name, the Lord's face, the Lord's mountain. It's referring to the Lord's fear. <clears throat> but how can that be? If that's the proper use of the phrase in Hebrew, the fear of the Lord... And it's saying that, that the fear is the possession of the Lord's, just like the whole list of other things of the Lord's possession. Something doesn't fit here. So this has been my week. Don't you wish you lived inside of my head? <laughs> You'll pray a whole lot more for Nadine at this point, right? So how can it be, especially in light of our main text today? Verse 18 of 1 John 4 says, There is no fear in love. That's pretty... Plain and simple, right? That perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So what is perfect love? Or rather, I should say, who is perfect love? Scripture makes it clear, makes it perfectly clear that God is love. We've seen it. We read it in verse 16. It says, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love, period. It's a whole sentence there. God is love. Can't say it any more plainly. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So if there's no fear in love, then there's no fear in God. Then the fear of the Lord is not the Lord's fear. It can't be. There's got to be some other explanation. So because God cannot fear, we must look at the original meaning of the word fear to accurately understand this phrase the fear of the Lord it's safe to say that the Hebrew phrase the fear of the Lord must have some alternative definition now the phraseology the fear of the Lord it's consistent with the way it's used in ancient Hebrew I think it's the word fear that's been misinterpreted and I think it's been misinterpreted through our polluted filter of Old Testament or Old Covenant thinking. So let's look at the word fear. The only way that this phrase fits into the common use of the Hebrew language is that fear has got to mean something other than our understanding of fear. So, ancient Hebrew. See, I got some hieroglyphics up there. See that? Ancient Hebrew is a pictorial language. And if you can interpret the pictures, you have a one, you'll have wonderful insight and great understanding into the meaning of the words. In some ways, Hebrew 
The Hebrew language is the, a, a perfect um, format for dream interpretation. When you interpret dreams, you interpret the pictures to gain understanding. The Hebrew language is the same way. If you can think metaphorically, if you can look at the pictures and see how they relate to one another, just like in a dream, you can get broader, greater, deeper understanding into the meaning of words. So in Hebrew, you read from right to left. And so the first letter there is Yud. And it means to work or to make or to throw. It's the functions of a hand. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the symbol, it kind of looks like an arm and a hand at the end of it. The second letter is Rashash or Rashash. And it means, the meaning of it is head or man. It could also mean chief or top or beginning or first. It means what's foremost. And it kind of looks like the head of a man. In rather rough drawing, doesn't it? And the third letter here, Aleph, means strength or power. Or it means the leader of a clan or a tribe. Or it means the father or head of a family. And it kind of looks like an ox head. You could see how an ox head could, could describe strength or power. So what we've translated and applied with our English understanding of fear, which doesn't fit the Hebrew construct, construct because, because God does not possess fear, could it actually mean something else? Looking at ancient Hebrew, I throw this out, this is my theory, could it mean something else? Could that word that we've translated as fear, could it mean the powerful activity of the clan's chief? Could it mean the strong hand of the tribe's leader? Or I like this one best. Could it mean the awesome manifestation, manifestation meaning hand, the awesome manifestation of the first father? Could it mean that? Could it mean the mighty hand of the Lord at work is the beginning of wisdom? Could it mean that the powerful activity of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Could it mean that the awesomeness of the Lord at work in our midst is the beginning of wisdom? Could it be that we've misinterpreted that mean, the meaning of that word and as a result misunderstood God? I think it's a good possibility. There's enough evidence as you study scripture to say, what we've done with that term, the fear of the Lord, it doesn't fit God. It doesn't fit the common use in Hebrew. In Hebrew, we've got to go back to the original language of the word to gain understanding of it. What if what we call fear is something entirely different? What if it's talking about the incredible power that's possessed by our God? Now, just to help a little bit more, the word yah, fear, it comes from a parent root word, yah which means to flow. It's related to words like river or rain. <clears throat> and from their flowing, or throwing as in the sense of rain being thrown down from heaven. Kind of similar to the Hebrew word for spirit, ruah, literally meaning wind, which is also flowing if you think about it. So what if we've interpreted fear, what if we've what to interpret fear more accurately as the flow of God's power. As the awesome flow of the first father, the, the awesome flow of God the father. 
and the impact and the effect that that powerful flow has on human beings. What if that's where the, where the understanding of the terminology of the fear of the Lord comes from? The awesome flow of God's power flowing from him and into us. And as, and as it was witnessed on people, the closest they could come up with to define it was fear. So, has anybody here ever touched a live wire with current flowing through it? I've had that delightful experience. A few of the other men have as well, right? Jolting, wouldn't you say? Some might call that experience frightening, wouldn't you? What happens when the power, the power of God flows from you, flows from him, and it touches you? That could be jolting. That could have a powerful impact. Now, for the guys who touched the live wire, how much control did you have over what your body did the second you touched that wire? If you were lucky, you had enough control to do this, right? And you did it really quick, right? It wasn't like you touched it and the thought occurred to you, wow, that current is painful. And I'm not sure this is a good thing for my body, so let me see, what are my options here? Well, one, I could continue to hold on to this, right? And see what happens, or, or B, I might consider letting go of it. No, your brain didn't do that at all. You touched it, bam, it hit you, and you're like, whoa, you just jumped away. Words may have come out of your mouth. Some of them may not have been holy. <laughs> when the power of God, when the power of the Father, when the power of the leader of our tribe, when his awesome mighty hand flows, from him and into us, I can see how that would be the beginning of wisdom. I can see how that would be the highest place of the seven spirits of God from Isaiah 11. Can't you? That seems to fit the whole narrative to me a whole lot better than fear as we commonly understand the word fear in our English language. Small things can have a huge impact. The definition of a word can have a huge impact. I want to experience, I want to experience the flow of the Father into my spirit. I want to, I want to experience the flow of the Father into the life of this church. I want to experience the flow of the Father, his awesome mighty power on this island. And I could see, I can easily see how that would be the starting place of wisdom. Because he's the source of all wisdom. I could see how that would be the highest place if you view Isaiah 11 as a, as a building progression. The experience of being impacted by the life and the power of God. I'll be delicate here. <laughs> it's relational. It's the way that God designed us. It's what produces life when flow goes from one to another. When flow goes from the father into the mother, a powerful thing happens. Life is produced. It's the way he designed us. It's not only relational, it's profoundly intimate. And it would fit with the definition of words like yada 
in Hebrew, which means to know, intimately know, or gnosko in the Greek, which means to know with an experiential knowing. I think small things make a big difference. I think a misunderstanding of one word can completely turn around the desire of the Father's heart from him wanting to embrace us in, at an incredible degree of intimacy. And if a word gets distorted, it has the opposite effect where we want to run from him. We want to hide from him because we fear that he's an angry God. That's not his heart. <clears throat> Jesus said, all right, if you have trouble with all this and you think somehow I'm playing, you know, ling linguistic gymnastics trying to get scripture to fit into my understanding, consider this. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? He said, there's no, there's no mistake in it. He said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So whatever understanding we have of the, of the Father, if we're still locked in that mindset, where we see him as the angry judge, ready, willing, and able to drop the hammer on us in any second, then we should have been able to see that in Jesus. And we didn't see that in Jesus. He was the friend of sinners. Right? He'd have dinner at their house. He'd have prostitutes washing his feet with their hair and their tears. The only people, I mean the only people group Jesus gave a hard time to were religious people. That's the only group. The religious people who would take the exercise of faith and use it as a stumbling block or a hindrance, an obstacle between them and God. I can tell you what, I love Nadine madly and passionately. I love her with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, all that I got. And if somebody tried to get between me and her, they are going down. You understand me? <laughs> They're going down. This kid, you can take the kid out of Brooklyn, you can't take the Brooklyn out of the kid. I think that was Jesus' heart for us. When he looked at the Pharisees, they're standing there with religion between him and the object of his divine affection. He said, you are going down. You'll not stand between me and the people that I love madly and passionately. So what's our Monday morning takeaway? God is love. He's absolutely love. He's absolutely loving. There's no fear in love. There's no fear in love. Why? Because perfect love casts out fear, and he is the epitome of perfect love. The fear of the Lord I present to you today is actually the powerful flow of his life into our life. And that sounds highly relational to me. That sounds transformative to me. What's our Monday morning takeaway? Small things matter, like the proper interpretation of one single word. Who? Let's pray. Oh God, oh God. Oh God, I pray. I pray that we would know the truth. I pray for every single one of us here that we would know the truth. And Lord, if I've, if I've missed the bullseye on this, would you, would, you, um, would you give us better targeting? Would you get us on the bullseye here? I pray that we would know the perfect truth, the absolute truth, and that your truth would completely set us free. 
Set us free from every hindrance, from every bondage. Set us free from religious religion, Lord. Set us free from lies. Set us free, Lord, not only for, from those things that are false, but from those things that distort who you are. Do it, Lord. Lord, I pray, I pray that we would know you as a loving father, not as an angry dad, not one to be feared, but one to be embraced. Oh, God. Oh, God. Have mercy on us, oh, God. Lord, I pray that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds. We've got thinking that needs to be shifted. It needs to be changed. We need to see you for who you are. And Lord, for some of us, you know, we've been, we've been churched a long time and there's, there's layers and layers and layers of religion. Lord, would you just break through all the lies, all the deception. And Lord, I, I pray this, not only would we be fascinated and aware of the truth of your great love for us, but that it would inspire us, that your love would so impact us that we could not help but love our neighbors. We couldn't help but love our friends and our co-workers and the people we go to church with, even the ones that annoy us, that we would really be able to love even them. Oh, God, come and do a God-sized thing in our midst. Come and do the things that only you could do. So it feels like there's some people here today, as I feel in the spirit, there's some people, you need prayer today. You haven't been prayed for. If, and I don't even know, it could be for anything, maybe something physical or something situational you're dealing with, a relationship. If you're here today and you need prayer and you haven't gotten prayer yet, would you just stand so we could pray for you? I'm not going to ask you what's going on. I just want to make sure you don't leave without getting prayer. Is there anybody who needs prayer today? Is there anybody else? I feel like there's more, guys. I just feel it in my spirit. Anybody else who needs prayer? That's good. Maybe another, a couple of other people, I think. Anybody need prayer? Would, um, would, would friends just gather around the people who are standing? You know them. You love them. Just gather around them and lay hands on them. Let's just pray for one another. Let this be the body at work. Oh God, you be our hands today. Lord, you be our hearts right now. Lord, I pray that our mouths would be your mouth and that you'd speak into the lives of our brothers and sisters who have need today. Lord, meet them at the point of their need. Lord, we invite you to come and, and enter in to the circumstances that they're facing. Lord, we ask for the powerful flow of your life into their life. We ask for the, for the powerful flow of your spirit into their spirit. Lord, we ask that by the power of your spirit and motive, motivated by your great love, that you would bring forth change. That you would take what's ever out of order and put it into right order. Do it, Lord. Lord, I pray that I pray that there would be reconciliation. Lord, we ask that there would be healing, that physical bodies would be healed. 
that emotions would be healed. Do it, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. You guys can just continue to pray. I just sent some revelation, and if this is for you, you can just take hold of it. I feel like I feel like there's some here today where the Lord's asking you to lay down your weapons. You're angry. You're upset. You're frustrated. Maybe somebody's done you wrong. And in your heart, <clears throat> not only would you like to retaliate, but you got the weapons to retaliate. And I really feel like in this moment, the word of God to you is this. He's saying to be merciful. He's saying to lay down your weapons. You, not only <clears throat> are you upset, but you have, the, you have the means to retaliate. And I feel like God's word to you today is this. To extend mercy instead of judgment. That mercy triumphs over judgment. And that might fit into some of your circumstances. Lay down your weapons. You could take the shot. <clears throat> the Lord's saying don't take the shot. Instead, love. He wants, you to, he wants you to know that love covers a multitude of sin. And that love never fails. That love will be vastly more effective in your circumstances than taking the shot will be. And that love and mercy are two sides of the same coin. So I'm, I don't know who that's for, what the circumstance is, but let that, let that be words of life to you today. Let that be instruction from the Lord for you today. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And just, just another thought. I know that Christmas is coming, and for some, it's a very hard time of year for people. And, and, and I feel like this would be the Lord's word to you. As you engage with family members and emotions and memories get stirred, the Lord wants you to know that it'll go well for you if you remember that it's more important to love than it is to be right. That the holidays will go better for you if you remember that it's more important to love than it is to be right. Because if being right comes at the expense of love, the price is just too high. And you'll regret paying it. So Lord, I pray as we go forward into the holidays, Lord, that we would be, oh God, make us a people who love extraordinarily well. Do it, Lord. Do it, Jesus. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. I love you guys. Bless you. Enjoy uh, the rest of your Sunday. And uh, I will see you throughout the week.